Hello and welcome. You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Join us on our magical journey through a wonderland of burning money. I'm Evan Swope. And I'm C.T. Kelly. And today on Desperate Acts of Capitalism, we are going back in time. Specifically, back to 1562. Oh man. Yeah. The good old days. I wonder what we could be talking about there. All right. The first Walmart. (laughs) <laughs> the Ur Walmart just sold some sticks back then. It's come a long <laughs> back, way. Back when it was back when it actually just sold walls. Yeah, that's where it came from. Back before it got corrupted. Yeah, back when walls were invented. <laughs> before then, buildings just had roofs. Look yeah. at the Parthenon. No walls on that boy. Used to be so cold. <laughs> until until Joseph Wall had an idea to to. We're just Stacks doing the Eric Andre, <laughs> John <bit>. Ladder. <laughs> that was a uh, Thomas Ladder. Thomas Ladder. Thomas Ladder and his and his friend Thomas Ladder and his mortal enemy John Wall. <laughs> they hated each other. <laughs> right. They, they would use ladders and walls and battle against each other. Right. Yeah. It's like, man, I just put up a wall. Why you got to use a ladder to climb over it? <laughs> You're mocking my invention, Thomas Ladder. <laughs> All right. All right, we, we have Enough. an episode to do. <laughs> Enough goofing. In 1562, a Flemish cloth merchant received a gift of tulips from a Persian merchant. He did not know what they were and ate some of them for dinner. <laughs> Specifically, he roasted and served them with wine. I will probably eat this. <laughs> the rest he planted in his garden. Okay, so he at does... least he planted some and he didn't just eat them all. Right, right. And... And he showed them to his friend, Joris Rye, who doesn't who didn't recognize the weird plants, but said that he knows a guy. Carolus Clusius was a Dutch botanist and studier of medicinal plants. His mother was a son of a goldsmith, and his father was a member of the royalty so low ranking he needed a side gig as a, a legal clerk to make ends meet. A member of a royal family that needs a side hustle to pay his bills. Right. He's not that royal. Yeah, just a little royal. Upon hearing that the original owner had eaten them, he had some preserved in sugar and ate them as a sweetener. He said that they tasted better than orchids. Which I love that Clusius has like a ranking of how good different plants taste in his head. (laughs) This tastes better than the other flower that I did eat. (laughs) Now Clusius was a bit of a chatterbox, and he had a habit of enclosing specimens with his letters. He wrote over 4,000 letters in his lifetime, wow. which is incredibly impressive, given yeah. that back then the Postal Service was just like a guy that you hoped was heading to the place that you needed the letter to go. Yeah. I got another one for you, Johnny. Oh, man. <laughs> so this is the 12th one today. Hey, are you, uh, can you drop this letter off in France? You headed to France? No. Probably. <laughs> I was not headed to France, but I'll take it anyway. Oh, man. I'm from India. <laughs> I was head, headed in literally the opposite direction, but, you know, people, it's fine. People kept giving me letters, and now I have to do this. <laughs> I don't even get paid. <laughs> I don't even know why I'm doing this. <laughs> it's a curse. <laughs> it's a curse. I angered wrote... Apollo. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote extensively about the dubious medical uh, medical applications of plants. His writings would later influence Carl Linnaeus and the idea of taxonomy. Wow. So, like, foundational to 
uh, modern science. Yeah, that's huge. In 1573, Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II asked him to establish an imperial hortus, or botanical garden, in Vienna, with a salary of 500 Rhine guilders. And he accepted, and made friends with botanists from all over the world. Nice. So, not only was this a recognition of his talents, but it was a bit of a watershed, because uh, he was Protestant, and Maximilian II was the Catholic Roman Emperor. <laughs> it's like, I know he's a Protestant, but he's a damn good botanist. Yeah, no, and that's that's exactly what happened. However, the Chamberlain was Catholic, and hated Clusius, <laughs> and made his life as annoying as possible. But, like, but his boss said he had to hire him, basically. Right, but he was, he was hired by the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, the emperor died and was replaced by a zealot who fired him. <laughs> he returned to Holland, where his garden was constantly stolen from by other nobles. One lady even took him on a tour of her garden and proudly displayed flowers that he knew for a fact were his. <laughs> These are my flowers. Yeah, sure they are. Uh-huh, yeah. But, like, I love this bitch. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, hey... Hey, Clusius. Hey, Clusius. You know whose Check flowers those are? <laughs> See those flowers? I grew them. I grew them, right? Yeah. I grew them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh, sure. Yeah, sure you did. So are we going to fuck or not? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're definitely going to fuck. <laughs> uh, <sighs> man. True story. True story. Uh, he, Clusius yearned for one thing above everything else recognition mm. he was 65 and in his twilight years but in 1592 he got it he received a letter from the princess Marine de Briveau offering him 750 gelders salary and a post at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands nice chapter 6 Leiden Leiden was a special place in 1692 the town's fame rested on the historic role it played in one of the defining terms of the century, the Dutch Revolt. Because nice. at this time, most of the world was owned by Spain. Damn near all of the South and Central America was wholly owned by them. Right. They were fighting the Ottomans in the Mediterranean, the English in the Caribbean, and the French on their doorstep. The southern provinces of the Netherlands, Holland specifically, were one of the world's biggest trade hubs, and therefore vital to any conflict with the economic powerhouse that was France. Yeah. And so, like, France's strategy for fighting you was they would just buy your army out from under you. Right. Their, entire, their economy was entirely self-sufficient, and so they didn't have to buy shit from other countries, but they loved selling shit to other countries. Right. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And so if you wanted to challenge them at all, you had to cripple their ability to sell shit to other countries. And thus, you had to take... Uh, Spain had to take Holland, right? Got it. The Dutch did not enjoy being occupied by Spain, but <laughs> King Philip II did not care. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's why well, he, he was occupying them in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Fuck <laughs> you guys. What he did seem to care about, however, was the rise of Dutch Protestantism which he was fine with widely persecuting, using the same soldiers the Dutch hated so much, who they were also forced to house, clothe, and feed at their own expense. Oh, man. So not only were these foreign soldiers beating them up and forcing them to not buy cool French shit, yeah. but they were also, like, oppressing them, and they had to pay all their bills. Yeah. 
that's bad. Yeah, well, it's it's a recipe for a Dutch revolt. Yeah, <laughs> sowing the seeds. Meanwhile, over in England, Queen Elizabeth I had been harboring a group of Dutch pirates known as the Sea Beggars in her channel ports. Under pressure from Spain, she finally expelled them, and with nowhere to go, the Sea Beggars did what pirates do and went marauding. <laughs> nice. They meandered along the coast of the Netherlands until they found themselves at the port town of Brill, discovering it had temporarily been left without its Spanish garrison. Oh. <laughs> so completely unoccupied. Like, there was no army there. Yeah. They, they occupied the town, which the townspeople loved. <laughs> nice. I mean, that like, shows how much they hated the Spanish, though. Or... <laughs> right, because they hated the Spanish garrison so much that they were like, fuck yeah, pirates! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please, have my wife. At least they don't religiously persecute us. Right, literally. Five days later, they sailed down to Flushing, a strategically vital port that controlled Antwerp's access to the sea, also completely unguarded. <laughs> Where are the Spanish? Uh, they're... Like, they're fucking off earlier. They're fighting the Ottomans and the English. Yeah, they got like, a lot, they have so lot many of enemies. Yeah. The revolt spread quickly, and by July, the entire country, with the exception of Amsterdam, was in the hands of the rebels. At Leiden, popular opinion was so in favor of the beggars that the town went over to the revolt spontaneously, before <laughs> any Protestant troops could even be sent to form a garrison. Right. Yeah, we're all set up here. <laughs> Hell yeah, rebellion! <laughs> The citizens chased out the Spanish loyalists and sacked the Catholic churches, earning the eternal ire of the Spanish. <laughs> Good. William the Silent, the Silent of Orange, the Calvinist prince, found himself the figurehead of the revolt and began planning for the inevitable counterattack. It nice. came a year later. The Spanish revealed their strategy to be one of raised earth. Smaller towns were overrun and slaughtered to the man. The Spanish terror bent nearly the entire country back into the Republic of Spain. That is, except for Holland and Zealand. Uh, I have a feeling that they might become important. Uh, you suspect correctly. <laughs> a massive Spanish army massed to roll north and swallow the Netherlands whole. In their way was Leiden. The siege of Leiden was the hardest fought, costliest, and most decisive action of the entire revolt. Had the town fallen, the Spanish would have completely conquered the Dutch Republic, and Dutch commerce would have remained in the south and wholly focused on the Spanish. Wow. Without the siege of Leiden, the Dutch would never have transformed into the globe-dominating center of trade that made the Tulip Panic possible <laughs> oh man that feels like the uh the prologue to a, mm -hmm. a bigger story there's there is so much historical backing that goes into this like because this is the first time anything like this had happened right like people didn't have words for this and so yeah. i i this book did such a great job of showing all the different factors that came to make this the insanity that was the Dutch tulip panic possible. Yeah. And I, I I hope I can recreate this sense that they had of watching it all just coalesce around each other like a symphony tuning up. Yeah. It's crazy. So many nations and armies and, and, and economies and everything involved in this. 
happening at just the right time in just the right place to make this possible. Yeah. The siege ended in 1574, and our boy Clusius arrived only a year later. Wow. Here he was tasked with constructing the Hortus Academius, the academic garden, at the college, and essentially heading its university botany department. The garden provided for him, nearly a third of an acre, was divided into 350 beds, of which each Clusius had specific plans for. By this time in his life, he was infirm, but was looked up to by a host of botany graduates eager to learn from him. Although his contract did say he was to visit the garden every day in the afternoon, as well as give lectures, he did none of those things. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll give some lectures. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh-huh, yeah. I'm the, most, I'm the most widely respected and valuable botanist in all of the civilized world. <laughs> go ahead. Like, I'll, I'll do that. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, I'll go over the grading policy on the syllabus, sure. Yeah. <laughs> he did none of those things, preferring instead to beekeep and tend to flowers in, his, in the private garden he insisted the university provide for him. <laughs> Nice. Just like bullying them into giving him a free private garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maintenance of the garden was largely given to his students, who tended to its crops of flowers and strange rare plants, including the recently introduced potato, which many scholars at the time believed to be highly poisonous. <laughs> if you eat this, you will die. The only reason the Irish can eat this is because they have the devil inside them. <laughs> One guy's like munching on one. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm fine. And they just shoot him in the face. See, he died. Another day of being correct here at the <laughs> University of Leiden. Another day living in terror from the poison of potatoes. <laughs> he can well and basically what this what he did was he never taught classes and basically just drank and talked about plants with his students who then they are the ones that became the actual botany professors right like he's gonna get passed off so much secondhand knowledge that it doesn't even matter that he's gonna be a professor because he's gonna like give them so much more botany teachers he, he revolutionized botany by just being clusius yeah right because before then like there was no such thing as botany being a bot like the study of plants was like you were a doctor you were just a doctor that knew about the medicinal properties of plants okay right got it uh, after clusius like he basically invented the modern study of botany right okay he continued to cultivate flowers until his death in 1606 at the shockingly advanced age of 83 wow he had a good long he life remained, yeah he remains to this day one of the most influential botanists in history, notably contributing to the works of Charles Linnaeus, as well as coining the term fungi. Wow. His almost neurotic correspondence with botanists across the globe spread his knowledge, as well as his tulips, across the entire civilized world. He was not the first, nor the last person to cultivate tulips in Europe. His true genius lied in how he studied them. Ah. He was perhaps the only man in Europe and maybe the whole world who could have properly understood the tulip. Yeah. He truly was, in the words of Prince Emmanuel of Europe, the true monarch of flowers. The flower king. But the Dutch Republic would not see true peace until almost 25, later, 25 years later with the Treaty of Munster in 1630. The navy and army could finally be reduced, and the money saved injected back into the Dutch economy. Hooray. And here falls the first domino. <laughs> nice. 
The lasting influence of the Monarch of Flowers lies in a book by the title of the Rororium Plantarium Historia. Clusius was known for his skill in describing the intricacies of his work in simple terms. The book details hundreds of descriptions of the plants that he had personally encountered over his life, but he was particularly impressed with tulips, specifically the ease with which one could create new varieties. No okay. other flower, he observed, perhaps except the poppy, was remotely as diverse, and that is putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. Tulips are ridiculously genetically diverse. Uh, um, in just this book alone, he detailed 43 different varieties of tulip compared wow. to 12 for poppies. Nice. Like, poppies have nothing on tulips. Yeah. Thanks to the efforts of the gardeners in Istanbul, the number of tulip varieties in Europe, each distinguishable by its unique color scheme or shape and arrangement of its leaves and petals, was already substantial in Europe in Clusius' day. The botanist was able to catalog no less than 34 separate groups. Clusius also wrote about the distinction between botanical tulips, i.e. wild tulips, and cultivars, tulips that were manipulated hybrids. He extensively details the types of hybrids that can be produced from uh, that can be produced and from which specific combinations. You know, it's like, oh, it's like tulip X and tulip Y produce tulip Z. Right, and you get all sorts of fun new flavors. Yeah. And so what, what this book was, was essentially a, uh, a how-to-grow-tulips guide for uh, the entirety of Europe. It was rapidly translated into uh, several different languages. Oh, nice. And basically what this did was it made tulips super popular with the academic world of Europe, uh, which then sort of bled into the rest of it. Got of it. Like these, these botanists growing these crazy, rare, new tulips. Right. Okay. Nice. Tulips also can be cultivated from bulbs and seeds. Cultivation from a seed is a sketchy process. It takes up to seven years, and in the meantime, one can't see the attributes of the eventual tulip uh, that it will form. Uh, so you don't even know what you're going to get. Yeah, you had no clue. Hmm. But once a tulip had grown and matured, it produced bulbs called offsets, which can be cultivated extremely quickly, only taking three months compared to uh, seven years. Okay and are often exact genetic replicas of the mother plant. So, um, but the thing is, is that a single tulip only produces, like, maybe two offsets. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like, a winter later, now you have two tulips, and then, you, like, those two tulips can become four. Right. And those four can become eight. So right? you can grow them much more rapidly. Much more rapidly. Got it. However, only two or three offsets are produced a year, and can only do so for a few years before the mother flower becomes exhausted and dies. Mm. By 1630, no less than 13 groups of flowers have been created, each with its own distinct color scheme. These ranged from the Coulerin, which were sing simple, single-colored tulips in red, yellow, and white, to the rare uh, Marquetrinen, late, rare uh, rare late-flowering varieties that had at least four colors. Nice. The Coulerin would have been botanical botanical tulips, or cultivars closely related to them. The, the Marquetrinens would have been very complex hybrids. Mm. In the Dutch Republic, the most popular varieties were the common rosin, white with, which is uh, white with red flakes and flames, the less common violetin, white with purple flakes, or the rare bizarden, 
red on yellow um, or like red on yellow or could be brown or purple or yellow like mm. these are the most colorful version nice tulips were graded on a strict set of, of criteria from uh, a scale of rude to superbly fine <laughs> rude yeah yeah a, a rude tulip was basically uh, a single color tulip that was like it was just red and so it was people looked at it like oh it's flaunting its colors too vagrantly <laughs> this is a rude tulip it's how boastful. rude <laughs> being red <laughs> so what caused the dutch tulips in specific to be so crazily colored the answer they were diseased <laughs> nice this was the source of the strange phenomenon that even Clusius noticed. A tulip that had one year produced a unicolored tulip might the next year produce a rosin or a bizarden. Uh. This process was known as breaking, and bulbs that had undergone it were referred to as broken, and mm. those that stayed unicolored were referred to as breeders. Okay. So if you wanted one of the more rare varieties, basically you needed a flower that would stay one color so that you could breed it with other tulips to create these rare varieties. Right, but the rare ones were the diseased ones, right? Yes, the rare ones were the were the diseased ones. And the ones that didn't have disease were the most common ones. Yes, okay. yes, exactly. Cool. Knowledge of these rare and beautiful tulips made them an extremely desirable fashion statement among the wealthy of Europe. Ah. At the wedding of King Louis Thirteenth in 1615, the women of the court often showed off by wearing a tulip pinned to their breast or simply slip, slipped between the titties. <laughs> Classy. It was here that Dutch horticulturalists realized that a single cut flower could be sold for thousands of guilders. What? In 1608, a miller exchanged his mill for a single specimen <laughs> of a tulip called a mare brune, which is a, uh, a delicate pink and red. A miller gave away his mill? Yes, like the thing that he used to make money. Yeah, his livelihood. He just became an ur. Well, it's like the... <laughs> he just became an ur. I know, I was, I was trying not to say that, but I, I was like, <laughs> I have to. Right. Well, and what he likely did with the tulip was he traded it for a better mill. Right. right. Well, the fact that it's he was like, so confident that like that would buy him a better mill just shows how crazy valuable they were. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's see, let's see. Another enthusiast traded an entire brewery for a single bulb of a tulip called a brazier, which is, like, scarlet with a heart of yellow. Mm. A third account of the same episode tells of a bride whose dowry consisted of a single solitary bulb her father had bred and named specifically for the occasion. A wow. rosin named La Mariage de la Fille, which is uh, white with pink and red flames. And this one's gorgeous. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, like, a like a flower made for a specific wedding. That's really cool. Right. It's like, I want a flower named after me. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Uh, the groom was reportedly delighted with the gift. <laughs> nice. The tulip took particular popularity with the Dutch petit bourgeois, generally uh, second and third generation businessmen who could live off the interest from stocks and bonds and had ample free time and money to spend. Mm hmm by 1600, the tulip became the symbol of wealth and good taste. Mm. And if there was a, a rich man in Holland, his name was Adrien Pau, and he lived on the Heemstede, meaning marshmallow, estate. What a great name. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it was his baby, and he lavished it with money. Not only was it one of the largest estates in all of the Dutch Republic, but its interior was full of the most expensive and lavish furniture that one could buy. Mm. He spent he spent thousands of gelders scraping away the poor topsoil of the grounds and completely refertilizing it. The landscape was laid out in the fashion of the time, with grand tree-shaded walkways and hedge mazes bisecting ornamental beds of roses, lilies, and carnations, all trimmed to perfection. And the crown jewel at the very center of the garden was the single prized bed of tulips. Mm. But there was something unique to this garden, something most guests never even noticed, because it was not something he wanted the visitors to see. The secret of Heemstede was an odd structure of wood and cunningly angled mirrors that stood at the very center of the bed of tulips. It was a looking-glass cabinet, designed to multiply whatever stood before it. Its purpose was to create the illusion of plenty where there was none. So, you know that thing that uh, like grocery stores do, where they, they put glass on the side of the shelves to make it look like there's more jugs of milk than there actually are? Yeah. So... This guy did that for his bed of tulips. Oh, wow. Because, because he wasn't rich enough to fill the entire tulip bed. This dude who was like, he had like a giant mansion with a hedge maze and like the most beautifully crafted furniture could not afford more than a few yeah. tulips. He, he couldn't afford more than a, a couple dozen tulips. Wow. Without realizing it, the cabinet had turned the bed of a few dozen tulips into a collection of hundreds yeah. It was an unfortunate necessity, because there were some things that even money could not buy. Despite his immense wealth, there were varieties of rare tulip that even he could not procure. Jeez. And even the best gardeners in his employ could not, uh, could not conceive to multiply. That's crazy. The finest tulips of all were only recently being created, and in scant and unpredictable supply. Right. Of all the varieties of tulips rated as superbly fine, one stood as emperor among them, the legendary Semper Augustus. Semper Augustus. Now, if you're listening at home, please open a browser window and Google what this flower looks like. All right, I'm going to look it up right now. All right, all right. Like, this thing is gorgeous. Wow. Right? This looks like a candy cane flower. (laughs) Yeah, it it doesn't look real. Yeah, it looks like something that would be growing in, like, Santa's workshop or something. Just like a Christmas flower. Like, something that would be, like, imagined by some fantasy author. Right, it's... It it does not look like a real uh, thing, you know? I can see Uh, why it was so, like, valuable. here's, Here's how one person at the time described it. It was a rosin tulip, but to call it a red and white flower would be like describing rubies and emeralds as red and green stones. Those fortunate enough to see it concurred that it was a plant of exceptional beauty, a living wonder, seductive as Aphrodite. In Latin, its name translates to the forever king. Wow. It was truly the holy grail of the tulip panic. It was so rare that it was almost never actually traded, and there were essentially no bulbs even to be traded. 
according to Nicholas van Wassenaer, by 1620, only a dozen samples were in existence, and all twelve were rumored to be owned by a single man, who is generally rumored to live in Amsterdam. The identity of this mysterious collector is one of the greatest mysteries of the tulip craze. Van Wassenaer never revealed their name. Wow. This is perhaps what the collector wished. They could have charged nearly any price for a single bulb of Semper Augustus. And part of the reason I think he never revealed his name was, like, if people knew where he lived, they would, like, kill him and steal yeah, his tulips. Right. Be, yeah, because, like, it's, like, something of, like, near infinite wealth. Something you can go for any value. price. Yeah. That's crazy. Throughout the 1620s, the man was bombarded with offers. The sums were not large. They were spectacular. Van Wassenaer records that in 1623, 12,000 gelders was not enough to procure 10 bulbs. How much is that, like, in today's money, do you know? That is that is the equivalent of $1.3 million <laughs> for 10 tulip bulbs. Remember, remember, this is 12,000 gelders, and uh, Clusius's salary for the University of Leiden was 750 Jeez. For one tulip. Right, and he's, and he's like a legend. Yeah. You know? Right, I mean, I'm sure uh, that's already like a very nice salary. Yes, that's, an, that's a great salary for the time. The flower's rarity, combined with its unpredictability, did little to turn hunters away. In fact, it only made them more fervent. Because the superbly fine varieties were scarce, they were coveted. Because they were coveted, they were expensive. Because they were expensive, they became increasingly lucrative to grow. And because they were increasingly lucrative to grow, skilled horticulturalists became worth their weight in gold. Oh, wow. By the late 1620s, it became increasingly apparent that demand could no longer be met by the exchange of small quantities of bulbs among connoisseurs. New enthusiasts of the flower, none of whom had the skills needed to breed varieties on their own, and few of the connections made to obtain bulbs the traditional way, began to enter the market. Mm. Some possessed extensive gardens they wished to use for cultivation, but were forced to look elsewhere for supplies. And so, they turned to the handful of professional horticulturalists who began to cultivate the fashionable new flowers. By 1630, professional growers could be found in nearly every city in the realm. Among them was Heinrich Potterback of Gouda, creator of the Potterbelkgewamt Rosen, or the uh, rust and yellow flamed Potterback Admiral. These Ooh, expert Heinrich horticulturalists. Oh, Heinrich Potterback and your, yeah. your Admiral. Ooh. I'm named after a cheese. <laughs> no, no, he, the town he's from is what the cheese is named after, actually. I live in a cheese town. It's made of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> all right enough this is this is what all dutch people are like yeah <laughs> they know. all live in little fairy cottages like yeah. mice they all have little wings yeah and when they get excited they float a couple feet off the ground <laughs> continue <sighs> da, 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 da. all right all right these expert horticulturalists had a keen eye for what was valuable and what would sell so like basically all the people flooding the market they couldn't buy like professional like botanists and so they turned to these like they started hiring these amateur horticulturalists um who eventually be like just by how well they were being paid and how often they were working just became professional botanists right yeah <laughs> uh uh and the thing is is because they were they started basically as hobbyists 
they they intricately knew the market. They knew mm. exactly what people would like and right. what would sell. Their like knowledge was a really good combination. Yes. Um, and everything was like self-learned. It, none of it was gone. Like they didn't learn any of it from school. It was all like firsthand experience. It was like the best possible training you could have. Yeah. Wow. At the top of the market, the Semper Augustus's closest rivals included the Viceroy, a large, bold, purple-flamed flower recognized as the King of the Violetten, and at the head of the Bizarden family was a flower named the Rutongil van Leda, or the Red and Yellow of Leiden. At the bottom, the cheapest and least coveted flowers were simple unicolors, their petals colored yellow, red, or white, which, mm-hmm. being the earliest introduced tulips, were also the most common. Mm-hmm. It was like Pokemon cards, right? Yeah. But if you could, like, breed together your common Pokemon cards, and you might get a uh, super valuable Pokemon cards. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. It's great, great this- game design. Yeah, exactly. It's like, there's a lot of concepts in game design that are, like, very, like, perfectly mirrored in exactly how the uh, the tulip panic ended up happening. Yeah, wow. It's very clear that there was, like, like a deep psychological hook for a lot of these guys. Right. It was, like, people that get addicted to gambling. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Or, or the stories that... Or the stories you hear about, like, people that spend $10,000 on, like, a phone game or something. Yeah, exactly. It's so sucked in. Right, exactly. But this new class of growers had one major rival. Groups of rugged individualists who scoured the European countryside for specimens to sell to collectors who called themselves the Rizotomi, the root cutters. Who oh are, my gosh. Who are, like, they're like the team rocket to... Oh, yeah this this pokemon world of tulips oh man so sinister <laughs> and what this means is that the dutch the dutch tulip trade had penetrated every level of dutch society like at the bottom with the poor you've got the rizotomi and then in the middle class you've got this new emergent class of like semi-professional growers yeah then you've got the uh you've got the upper middle class of like professional and semi-professional horticulturalists and then at the top, you've got the rich that are, like, paying for the creation of new varieties and the ones actually buying these crazy, ultra-expensive tulips. Oh, man. So everyone is, like, contributing in their own unique but important way. Well, it, what this means is that the Dutch economy is, like, a significant percentage tulips. Yeah. <laughs> mostly tulips. Or not mostly tulips, but it's, like... A critical load-bearing brick of the Dutch economy yeah. is tulips. Right, which is crazy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Emmanuel Sveerts was an old friend of Clusius who ran a curiosity shop in Amsterdam and was active in the first decade of the century selling tulips at the Messe, a yearly fair held in Frankfurt. He was one of the first people to get into the tulip export business. But the increasing professionalism of the tulip trade posed a problem for men like Emmanuel. Tulips were in bloom for only a few days every year. They had to be sold as bulbs, but the brown paper packages they were sold in looked nothing like the enticing investment Sphirts needed them to be. His solution? A catalog packed with beautiful illustrations of every variety of tulip known to man. He Uh. persuaded his most eminent client, Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, to pay the print bill. The same emperor that had dismissed Clusius from imperial service but who now dabbled in tulips between conducting his uh, between conducting alchemical experiments that were his chief passion. 
Nice. Thus was born the Floregium, and its later companion, the Hortus Floridus, which were explosively popular and translated into several languages. Mm. This began a tradition of growers commissioning their own custom catalogs for their products, often fighting with each other for the time of for the time and money of famous artists. Um, one of these artists was uh, Rembrandt. <laughs> oh wow! One of the most famous artists, not only of the time but in history. Yes, who uh, reportedly got so fed up with all of like. He reportedly got so fed up with all of these different tulip traders trying to commission him that he stopped taking requests and would do uh, commissions of single flowers for the equivalent of like twenty bucks. <laughs> Just does not care. Well, he like he started he started taking super cheap flower commissions out of spite. It's like yeah, I'll paint <laughs> flowers, but not your flowers. Yeah, right. It's not because you're not paying me enough. It's because I just don't like you. Right. It's just like, I don't want to be like, I don't want to, you're just doing this so it can have my name on it. You know, it's like, I don't want you to, I don't want you to use me as advertising for your stupid tulip business. Yeah. So you can get rich. Right. I want to do this so I can paint. Yeah. And get rich. Jeez. And what this meant was circulating Europe and especially the Dutch Republic was a simple handy and readily available manual on how to grow tulips mm-hmm. right nice. and so what this was was like here you had the floridius which was here is a manual of all of these different tulips and the exorbitant prices that they were sold for yeah and then combined with uh Clusius's earlier work was here is everything you need to know about growing tulips because the printing press like had just been saturated into europe so books were super cheap now it's the perfect storm yes everyone was reading about this every level of society was in some way involved with the tulip trade yeah that's crazy this penetrated every level of society. The entirety of the Dutch Republic was in some way touching the tulip trade. <laughs> I feel like, stuff like full... it's teetering on the edge of something. Yes. And thus falls the second domino. <laughs> Plink. Because all of this, all of this was build up. Yeah. Like all of this is the foundation of what makes the actual tulip panic possible. Right. Because what we're going to see on part two is how all of this, like what we see now is like the two tulips are a trade, you know, we saw them start as a hobby and become a trade. Yeah. And now, and now they're a business, right? Okay. You, you can be in the tulip business. Yeah. But what, what's going, what we're going to see in part two is tulips become an industry, Ooh. right? Yeah. Because all this, like, okay, that whole thing about uh, a bulb of Semper Augustus being sold for, like, offered for $3,000. Yeah. That's, and this stuff about, like, people selling their mill for a single tulip bulb. None of this even comes close to the sheer insanity that is the tulip panic. Yeah. Wow. And that stuff is already just insane. Like, for one tulip selling your whole livelihood. Right, right, but I hope this I hope that this episode illustrated 
why tulips were valuable in the first place. Like, yeah. where this all came from. Right. Definitely. And just, like, like the historical rare... and political and, and economic factors that are just circling all of this. Right, because, not like, this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Right? There's all these different influences that feed into creating something as insane as the Dutch tulip panic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I hope I did a good job of explaining, like why tulips are valuable yeah if that makes yeah definitely like as this as a, a fashion statement for the rich and like all of the the work that you have to put into creating these beautiful varieties and everything yeah well plus just like the game of like finding that rare one and those really really rare varieties in this sport of and like using the common ones to breed the rare ones and stuff it's all just like the perfect storm right right because it's like it's like Pokemon cards, but it's like Pokemon cards where you've got common ones and rare ones, but it's like if you can breed the common cards together to eventually create rare ones. Yeah. But it's never guaranteed. There's always a gamble to it. Right. And it's just something about that really sticks with the human consciousness. Yeah. You know? Like yeah. Like, it's just... You become obsessed like, with it. Completely. And it, it. so many people just became like almost addicted to this that's crazy the tulips i would right, never have thought right, right. who have like and that's part of it no one saw this coming yeah at all like totally because it nothing like that had happened before no there weren't any words for this yeah like like we're definitely going to get into it on the second episode but like after everything was done like it all happened so fast that people like like the legal system didn't know what to do. People yeah. didn't even... Pe- there weren't words to talk about it. Right. People had no idea. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that is. So, so jo- definitely join us next yes. time for part two. Right, part we two. S- tulips get crazy. Right, for the boom. <laughs> oh, man, I'm excited. Big things All are coming. Right. Big things are coming, and they are... They're, what they are is extremely expensive tulips. Yeah. Oh man, right. I'm very excited. Yes. Okay. I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Nice. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, that was a lot of fun. I'm I'm very excited for the madness, the true madness. Yes. Thank you for listening. If you want more, consider supporting us on Patreon for early content, uh, bonus content, and much more fine goodies. We post a lot of random stuff. Like we post the full audio clip of us watching cats for the first time. And I, I posted the, the full uh, downloadable Ron Johnson theme song. So how could you possibly pass that up? You would be a fool. A fool, I say. <laughs> yes. Right, goodbye. Thank you much. Bye. We love you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you really want to make us happy, you can leave us a nice rating or review. You can follow us on Instagram at Desperate Acts of Capitalism and on Tumblr, link in the show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Desperate Acts of Capitalism.